Let's pray and open God's word together. Father, what a joy it is to be with these dear men. We ask that you touch us with your word this morning. We ask that you help us to, Lord, be like Josiah, who, when he heard the reading of the word for the first time after I had been disappeared for so long, Lord, he tore his clothes and he, he was eager to become a doer of the word. So I pray you do that in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. By God's grace, I have been given the privilege to travel all across the country into different parts of the world and to share God's word with different audiences. And typically when I travel, I like to take one of my five children with me. A number of years ago, I was invited to speak at a conference in Ohio, and so I took my then teenage son, Luke, with me on that trip. And in the course of our journey, we found ourselves traveling through one of the busiest airports in the United States of America. And after making it through security, which is often a miracle for this very innocent-looking Arab, my son Luke points to the left-hand side and he goes, Dad, Dad, look, isn't that one of our ministry's million-dollar bill gospel tracts? So I looked to the left-hand side and I see a counter. Behind the counter were three police officers. On the counter was this little metal stand and, and some rectangular figure on it. And so I start walking over there, you know, my eyes bulging. I'm like, you know, which is a bad thing for an Arab to do in an airport, by the way. Not, not a good idea. I don't recommend it, brothers. So I come up and I look at this thing on the counter and I realize my son Luke was wrong. It wasn't one of our ministry's million dollar bill gospel tracts. It was an entire stack of our ministry's million dollar bill gospel tracts. I'm looking at these things. I'm like, what in the world? It was like the twilight zone. And right at that moment, one of the police officers starts to walk over toward me. I go, excuse me, officer, I'm really confused. You know, my ministry prints these up and I have no idea how it got here. And he looks at me, he goes, easy. And I'm like, ah, it was Ray Comfort, man. I had nothing to do with this. He goes, easy. I can't believe you're here, man. I love your ministry. This is crazy, you know. And so suddenly it starts to dawn on me. I go, excuse me, officer, did you put these here? He goes, yeah. And I go, they haven't stopped you. I think they haven't busted you yet. He goes, not yet. I remember thinking, it's coming. I was so blown away, man, by just this whole situation. I give the officer my card. I said, please email me. I'd love to get in touch with you. So I get home, and I find this email in my inbox from this police officer. He said, good morning, sir. As the subject line says, it was nice to meet you and your son yesterday at the airport. Yesterday was the first time I have ever met the tracts, the tracts out at the law enforcement podium, even though the thought occurred to me a few years ago when I first learned of your ministry through a homeschool conference. When my two partners and I arrived at the podium yesterday, I pulled out the tracts and set them up. They were curious and read the tract, including the gospel message on the back. That then sparked a conversation that lasted several hours. I used info from Ray Comfort, Bodie Bauckham, Ken Ham, and all the other info I picked up from a variety of sources, like the Bible. They were not getting it. They challenged me on everything from ancient aliens to why are the Jews God's chosen people. Then you walked up. And you looked like an ancient alien. Easy, phone home. Then you walked up. After you left, I had to explain who you were and the total improbability of you walking up at that moment. As one of my partners put it, it was like having an Amazon Kindle on display, talking about Amazon products, and then Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon, walking up. Using God's blessing of mobile internet, I showed them livingwaters.com, 180, Noah, God versus evolution, and whatever else was up on the screen. After a 10-hour shift of witnessing, 
I believe they will begin following Christ. How awesome is that? I mean, you guys can only imagine how blown away I was by this. And as even the officer said to the believer who had put out the tracks, what are the odds of something like this happening by random chance? Of all the days we could have been traveling, it was that day. Of all the airports we could have been going through, and there are many, it was that airport. Of all the multiple security checkpoints we could have checked in through, it was that one. Of all the directions my son could have looked in, it was in that direction. Of all the days he considered putting out our gospel tract over the course of a couple of years, it was that day. And of all the things he could have been doing when we, when we walked up, he was sharing the gospel from one of our ministry's gospel tracts. If you don't believe in the existence of God, you have got problems. And brothers, you can only imagine how overjoyed I was. Talk about, right, divine convergence. I was, I was blown away. I was overflowing with joy and with bliss and euphoric emotions. I was walking on water, glowing in the dark, floating in the clouds. Because it was such an amazing and wonderful experience. I wish I can tell you, brothers, that every single day of my past 30-year walk with God has been like that day a day of euphoric emotions and bliss and, and great circumstances and favorable situations. But I would be a liar if I told you that because every day of my walk with God has not been like that day because, brothers, like all of you, I live in the same world. And like all of you, I am a man who deals with trials and with temptations and with challenges and with pressure and with tiredness and exhaustion I deal with difficult circumstances, unfavorable situations, challenging people. And at the same time, like you, I'm also living in a very Christianized atmosphere. We don't realize what we have. It's kind of like a fish, right? Not knowing it's wet. We think we've got it tough here in the United States because we have seen things change and there have been more challenges for us as believers. But trust me, until you go around the world, you don't realize what we have here. This is the Christian Disneyland of the planet right? We hang out with our Christian friends. We do our Christian Bible studies. We read our Christian books. We listen to our Christian music. We wear our Christian apparel. We don our Christian accessories. Some of us, believe it or not, eat our Christian breath mints. Yes, they have them, brother, Christian breath mints. I know some bros can definitely use some sanctification in the oral hygiene department, but Christian breath mints? Like, hey, Lifesaver? Oh, no, brother. I only do soul savers. I'm waiting for the Christian deodorant to come out. You know, forget Old Spice. It's new creation spice. Wouldn't surprise me a bit. But what happens when you take those two elements and you combine them, the fact that we are people that are beset with struggles and challenges and Busyness and exhaustion and, and tough circumstances and difficult people and all that mesh together. And the fact that we also live in a very Christianized world and we also know we are ambassadors for Christ, what ends up happening is we go through life, even at times engaging in Christian activities, relating to people as Christians because that's what we are, but without the right Christian heart and attitude. And brothers, nothing nothing could be more tragic. And what we end up doing is we end up tossing out a bunch of characteristics that should mark us, like we talked about last night, as ambassadors for Christ. 
And I found that one of the first things to go when we're living that way, in the midst of all those circumstances and this Christianized world, one of the first things to go is the attribute of compassion. Compassion. And if there's anyone on earth that should be marked by compassion, it's the Christian. Because you remember we were lost, we were blind, we were dead, and then we were found, given sight, and brought back to life. God hath so much compassion upon us. And if anyone should be a dispenser of compassion, it should be us. It should be the banner over our lives, compassionate. But oftentimes that's not the case. This morning, I want to answer the question, how can we, as the ambassadors of Jesus Christ, like we discussed last night, be a people of compassion, especially in the midst of a day and age where it's really challenging to be compassionate toward a world that is so set in opposition to our God, that is full of so much wickedness and so much evil and so much iniquity. And for that, we're going to look at an instance in the life of Jesus and his disciples. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while, for there were many coming and going, and they did not have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitudes saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. If you grew up in the 1980s like I did, you know that we deprived souls had very little by way of reality television to satisfy our entertainment cravings. We had the old traditional scripted television programming, right? And you remember all the shows, shows like The A-Team and Knight Rider and Airwolf and Magnum P.I. Yeah, you guys, you're getting the memories are flowing now. That's when TV was really TV, brothers, right? You remember the, the dramas like uh, Airwolf and, uh, or the, the sitcoms rather, like Different Strokes and Happy Days and and saved by the bell and family ties and growing pains. Remember growing pains? It's so crazy, but I ended up working with the actor Kirk Cameron. He was a partner of our ministry. Any any of you here ever watch growing pains, right? Okay. Any of you ever seen the movie Fireproof? Okay. Right. So Kirk Cameron became a part of our ministry and it was the weirdest thing in the world. We spoke at conferences together all across the country. It was the strangest thing to be introduced at a Christian conference by Mike Seaver of all people. And I, I remember one time we were speaking at a conference in West Virginia, and Kirk's movie Fireproof had just come out in the theaters. So he wanted to go into a theater kind of incognito undercover and just monitor audience reaction to different parts of the movie without people knowing that he was there. So there happened to be a guy that knew a guy who managed the theater. So we got in right after the movie started under the cover of darkness. We go in, we sit down. It was the strangest thing in the world to be sitting in this theater, watching Kirk Cameron crying on the screen while sitting next to Kirk Cameron, who was crying while he was watching Kirk Cameron crying on the screen. Talk about surreal. I digress, but nonetheless, you guys know all those programs from the 80s, but something happened in the year 2000 where the first reality television programming came to the screen, and and it was shows like 
Survivor and Bachelor and, and uh, the other one, I can't remember its name, but these launched a, a total transformation in the television programming. And all of a sudden from that point, you hardly see scripted TV anymore. Most of it is reality television based. And why is that? It's because producers and television executives came to realize that there's something in the human heart that loves reality. We want to see things as they are. We want things unscripted. We want to see people with their hair down and their makeup off and their feet up. And this, my brothers, if you would, is a reality television type of moment in the life of Jesus and his disciples. We see them in the midst of a very challenging and difficult situation and without any time to prepare or get ready, suddenly it was lights, cameras, action, and we see how our Savior rose to the occasion and how he responded in the midst of that. And you might say, well, what's the big deal? Here's Jesus and the disciples. This crowd comes up. Jesus gets up, looks at him, has compassion. What, what, what are you making us think about all this? Context, brothers, it's so important. You've got to understand the context of things in the Word to, to appreciate their significance. So let's back up for that, and let's look at the context for the compassion of Jesus. We back up to verse 7 of our chapter here at Mark 6, and it says, And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. Then in Mark 6, 12 through 13, it says, so they went out and preached that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And then in Matthew chapter 9, we're told that Jesus himself participated in those same activities. So this is what Jesus and the disciples were doing when we suddenly find them surrounded by this crowd, right? And Jesus looks at the crowd and is moved with compassion. Leading up to that, we see that, first of all, it says that they went out and they preached. They went out on this missionary journey and were preaching the gospel and telling people that they should repent. They weren't going out and preaching some Casper milk toast, soft, come and experience the bliss that Jesus will give you as he changes your life and, and, and makes everything better. They were preaching that people should repent. That's not an easy message to preach in our day and age. It's not the kind of message that people roll out the red carpet for and pat you on the back and say thank you. They were in a culture that was diametrically opposed to Christ, a, a hyper-religious culture that was extremely, extremely antagonistic. And so they were out doing the hard work of proclaiming the gospel. We talked last night about how so hard that is. Imagine in the midst of intense hostility and persecution. In connection with that, it says they were casting out demons. For those of you in here who have ever done any preaching to any degree, you know how much it takes out of you. In fact, we're told scientifically that one one-hour sermon is the equivalent of eight hours of physical labor. So imagine they're preaching constantly, nonstop, and then on top of that, now they're casting out demons. I don't know how many of you have ever experienced demonic activity, but it's not for the faint of heart, and it's not a walk in the park. We're not talking about Casper the friendly ghost here. We're talking about demonic entities. Remember the seven sons of Sceva, how they were ripped apart by the demons? This was intense and grueling. It was interactions with the unclean and the diabolical. And then on top of that, it tells us that they anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. That may sound like a wonderful and fun adventure. It was great. Yes, seeing God heal people, but can you imagine being crowded by people who were infirmed who were diseased, 
who were, who, who, who were mangled, crying, weeping, begging, pleading. Can you imagine the toll that that takes on the human soul? But then on top of all of that, the verses just previous to our text, we're in verse 30 of chapter 6, verses 27 through 29, we're told that John the Baptist, who was Jesus' beloved relative and the friend of the disciples, was just murdered. But not murdered with any kind of normal murder. He was gruesomely beheaded. If you remember Herodias, Herod's wife, she had a quarrel with him and she had her daughter who danced before them at Herod's birthday party ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter and it was delivered. So brothers, this is what was going on leading up to and surrounding the account that we've read about Jesus standing up and looking at the multitude and being moved with compassion. The disciples and Jesus had just finished this intense missionary journey where they were preaching, where they were casting out demons, where they were healing the sick. John the Baptist had just been gruesomely murdered and beheaded. People were coming to the disciples from everywhere to the point to where they didn't even have time to eat. So Jesus tells them, let's get away for a while so we can be alone and rest. And all of a sudden, 5,000 people show up on their doorstep again. And Jesus stood up and he looked at them in the midst of the tiredness and the exhaustion and the busyness and the pressure and the challenges and the trials and the grief. And he was moved with compassion. You know, I don't think my account would read like this. Can you imagine having had the toughest week of your life? One thing after the other going wrong, pressure beyond pressure. You're at work, man, practically sleeping there, haven't had a chance to shave in a week, hardly eating anything, living off of coffee fumes, basically. And then you find out one of your relatives was just gruesomely murdered. It's all over the news. You're about to snap, and your boss comes up to you, hands you something, says, hey, all expense paid trip to Hawaii, go. You get there, man, you walk in your hotel room, drop the bags, throw on the rope, kick up your feet. You're about to pop some bonbons, and then you all of a sudden hear a knock on the door. You open it up to see 5,000 of your smiling clients. <laughs> Aloha! Like the Cheshire cat. I don't think my account would read, and easy was moved with compassion. I think it would read, and easy was moved with murderous rage. not Jesus. And why is it that he was able to look out on that crowd and be moved with compassion for them? See, oftentimes we highlight the deity of Christ and fail to remember that as much as Jesus was God, he was man, 100% God, 100% man. He was the God man. And being man, he experienced exhaustion. He experienced tiredness. He experienced weariness and temptation and grief. So this was real for Jesus. He experienced all of that. And yet he was able to look at that crowd and be moved with compassion for them in the midst of all of those circumstances. And while engaged in this sort of Christian atmosphere, if you would, in ministry all the time with his disciples. Why? Because he dared to see these people as they were. It says he saw them as weary and scattered. The word weary means distressed. It originally means flayed torn, mangled. The word scattered means thrown down, 
prostrated as if they had been cast down from weariness from their own exhaustion. Yeah, Jesus looked at this multitude and he dared to see them as they were. Do you guys recognize that those who don't know Christ are in the crosshairs of Satan? That they are susceptible to the folly of the influential world? That they are sort of at the mercy of their own fallen, wicked nature and flesh without any recourse to escape those things like we have as believers? Jesus wasn't blinded to the fact that they were wicked, wretched, evil, rebellious sinners that were deserving of his wrath and hell, but he also dared to see the other reality that concurrently existed within them as well. And as he saw that, his heart was moved and touched with compassion for them. It says he also saw them like sheep without a shepherd. This is Matthew 9, which gives us more insight. It says, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Jesus dared to see them as that. He saw them, listen, as entrapped sinners who were ensnared by the repercussions of their own sin and folly and the sin and folly of other entrapped sinners. Wow. And on top of seeing them as weary and scattered, torn and flayed and mangled and having spun themselves in a tizzy because they're trying to figure out this thing called life without knowing the author of life and the book he's given. And he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. What does a shepherd do for his sheep, brothers? Shepherd guides his sheep, right? He guides them into, into those safe courses on the field. He provides for his sheep. He takes them to those green pastures where they can eat that succulent grass and be nourished. He takes them to those cool rivers of water to drink and be refreshed. The shepherd protects his sheep from the ravenous wolves and the venomous vipers. The world doesn't have that. And if there's anything we take for granted and forget how precious it is to have, it's the shepherding care of Jesus in our lives. Remember when you first came under his shepherding care, how much that revolutionized your life? The world doesn't have that. So he looks at them and he sees them as torn and mangled and flayed and, 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 and exhausted, cast down because of their inability to cope with all that life contains, and he sees them as shepherdless. And his heart is moved. And then he says something to the disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest field. He no doubt intended for them to be the answer to that prayer because he told them later, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. And brothers, that's my question to you this morning is will we pray that God will send out labors into this harvest field of people who are weary and scattered and shepherdless, and then will we be the answer to that prayer and go out and be the hands and feet and mouthpiece of Jesus and touch them with his compassion? Will we walk as he walked? First John 2, 6, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Ephesians 5, 1, therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also loved us, to walk as he walked, to imitate him in his 
love. He looked at them with compassion. Here's the definition of the word compassion. It means to feel deeply or viscerally, to yearn, to have pity, a feeling of distress from the ills of others. It means to suffer with another, to have mercy, to alleviate the consequences of sin or suffering in the lives of others. It means to bear, to treat with gentleness. In other words, it means put yourself in someone else's shoes and take a walk for a few miles. Do we have this kind of heart toward people? If you're anything like me, man, you are constantly tempted to be frustrated with people. Like constantly, like everywhere, like all the time. Especially when your heart is beating for the glory of God and you're passionate for his kingdom and you're seeing your kids growing up in this godless age that is tearing them to pieces with its evil influence at every turn. Your heart gets overwhelmed and if you're like me, you want to lash out. You want to be like the sons of thunder and call fire down from heaven. Lord, just consume them all. But man, to have that heart where we look out at people like Jesus did. And I love the description to, to, to deeply feel, to, to feel deeply and viscerally. If there's any place for emotion in our lives as men, we as men are guarded in our emotions. We do need to be careful because a lot of people are swayed by emotions. We need to be rooted in God's word. But if there's any proper place for emotion, it's in the place of caring for other souls and having compassion on them. To feel viscerally and deeply, to have pity a feeling of distress from the ills of others, to want to suffer with an other, to say, I want to enter your world and be there with you. And I love the other descriptions, to have mercy and then to do it with gentleness. But the main desire is to alleviate the consequences of sin and suffering in the lives of others. I want to come into your world and I want to bring you out of where you are powerful. I want that heart, brothers. Do you? Don't you want to be able to look out at people and before you start grumbling and murmuring and complaining and and wanting to see them wiped out or whatever, that you look and you say, man, I care. I feel. I want to enter your world. I want to rescue you. I want to bring you out of it. And you know what's hard, man? It's thinking of the individual because we're good with the masses, right? Well, I tell you, when Jesus was looking out at this multitude, he didn't look at them with blurry vision as one big blob. He looked at them as individual people. Everyone in that crowd had a story, had a background, had a history, had, had sin and wickedness and rebellion all rolled up into one big glorious mess. But I tell you, he knew the individual because he fashioned and formed every person. Do we care about the individual? C.S. Lewis said something very convicting. He said, it is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Wow. There's a preacher that says, if you can't say amen, say ouch. (laughs) Ouch. This is an ouch, right? And, and what is C.S. Lewis conveying? He's saying, man, we can get into this flow where we're looking at, oh yeah, I love them. Those are people that I love. They are people that I care about. But what about him and what about her? 
What about individual people who have been imprinted with the image of God? Do we think of the individual? Because I'll tell you what, brothers, as we live through this life as ambassadors of Jesus, people know if we genuinely care about them or not. They know if they're notches on our belt or if we're putting on a fake face or if we truly care for their souls. I remember a number of years ago when I was pastoring, we had a midweek study and our church was in a strip mall and it was near a coffee shop. A lot of performers would come, bands, they would play, and then they would take breaks. And oftentimes they would stand outside and have a cigarette. And so when we were getting ready for service, I was going in and out. And suddenly I realized that our people were trying to share the gospel with a a group of musicians that had stepped outside. And as I began to catch things from the conversation, I came to realize that our people were not representing the compassionate heart of Christ toward these unbelievers. It was getting harsh and intense and and our people were really blowing it. So after some time I came, I stood on the periphery and I waited for a break in the conversation. And then when there was one, I interjected myself and I, I looked at, at these young men and one in particular named Seth. I'll never forget him. I still pray for him to this day. This was 20 something years ago. I remember I looked at him and I said, hey, Seth, I just want you to know my friends here, they care about you guys. They're trying their best to share the gospel with you. And I just got to tell you, man, I, I, I've been listening to you guys talk and I can tell that you have really given some thought to some of this stuff you're talking about. You've looked into it, and I, I can't tell you how much I respect that because a lot of people just shoot from the hip, and they really don't put in the time. And so I really admire that. And then I went from there, and I, I shared the gospel with them. I didn't compromise. I talked about the reality of sin, that they defended a holy God. There's coming a day of judgment. Hell is real. But then I talked about the love and mercy and grace of God and, and the death and resurrection of Christ. And at the end, I looked at Seth, and I said, Seth, look, I just want to let you know that I shared these things with you today because I care about you. I shared these things with you today because I love you. And then he looked at me in a way I'll never forget and said something to me that I will treasure until the day I die. After telling him I shared these things with him because I love him and care about him, he looked at me and he said, I can tell. I can tell. And I remember walking away from that and saying, oh Lord, I never want any other evangelistic encounter that I ever have to ever end in any other way than like that then the person that I'm talking to will recognize that I genuinely care for them. Remember in 1 Corinthians 13 where love is discussed and it talks about the man who, who sells all of his goods to feed the poor, who gives his own body to be burned and it says, and yet does not have love. How is that possible? It's because there is an indispensable element that must be present in order for love to be true, genuine, biblical love. And that element is genuine care for the supposed object of our love that people would know, that people would sense it. I want to give you a sort of fly-on-the-wall view into an exchange I had with a young man on my Facebook page a long time ago. I, I have uh, a lot of followers on Facebook. I have a public page, but I also have a personal page, and I've never, ever sent out a request to anyone. So I have a lot of people on my page, and I, I don't know who a lot of them are, but I one day posted something about what was going on, if you guys recall, during the time when these bakers had refused to bake a cake for a gay wedding and, and they were radically persecuted. So I posted something about how we as believers need to stand boldly on truth, that we can't compromise this. If we love homosexuals, we're going we're gonna to stand for truth, but at the same time, we need to do it with compassion and love. So anyhow, I, I look under my post later and I see a comment and it just simply said, shame on you. I didn't know if it was referring to me or someone else or I, I didn't know who this person was. So I sent a private message, and to protect his identity, I'm going to call him John. 
I said, John, greetings to you, my friend. I hope you're doing well. I noticed you recently posted a response to one of my posts in which you said, shame on you. I wasn't sure if that was directed toward me or someone else who had made a comment. It would be great if you could possibly give me some clarifications. If I said something to offend you, I would definitely want to know what it was so that I could hear your thoughts and think through it. Thank you so much, and God bless you. So John responded. He said, I have struggled with my sexuality since I could remember. Even at a young age, I felt a special affection for the same sex. You think you understand these things, but you have no idea how difficult a struggle and a life we live. You just like to talk and a lot. He got that right. I'm a child of God, and I know the Lord as he knows me. You will never reach or save a homosexual, bi, transsexual the way you are going. I'm a college student. I was saved years ago and studied the Bible then and now. I love all. Don't bother with preaching me a sermon. I know what you think and what you have to say about all this. As a human being to another, have compassion, understanding, and love for others who are not like you. There are millions of lives who need real love and help, not just another cookie-cutter Christian who knows it all. Woo! <laughs> a little bit of fire there, right? John was obviously struck. So I responded. I said, dear John, I'm sick and tired of you. <laughs> I'm just kidding ambassador of Christ. <laughs> Dear John, thank you so much for your response. I really appreciate it. I will pray and think through what you said and will respond after that. Have a blessed night. That's exactly what I did, brothers. You know why? Because I've blown it so many times in sharing the gospel with others. I've blown it so many times and not having the compassion I need to have. The story I shared with you with Seth was one of those rare, gracious moments where God bless me to be able to do the right thing, but I didn't want to blow it. Here was a soul that God had entrusted into my care that I had the opportunity to speak to, and I wanted to do it right. I wanted to represent the Lord. And so I sought the Lord, and when I sensed I had a direction, I responded. I said, John, thank you so much for your patience on my replies. I had mentioned I really wanted to give thought to what you had written and also pray over it. I know that this may be hard for you to believe, but I really do care about you. I can't even begin to imagine how difficult your struggle has been and how many, and, and you have my deepest sympathy. If you're ever in harm's way and I happen to be present, I would readily take a bullet in your place. The Lord is witness to the sincerity of my heart in this regard. And you're right, I do talk a lot. There are times I definitely end up regretting many of the things I say and wish I could take them back. Obviously, some of the things you've heard me say must have fallen short of true biblical love, kindness, and compassion. And for that, I humbly ask for your forgiveness. You're also right that I don't understand what you've been through or the struggles that you've had. I will honor your request and not preach to you. However, I would like to share some videos with you from people who do understand your life and what you've been through. It's fully up to you if you want to watch these. If you don't, just simply ignore them. Here they are. And I included a number of links with men who used to be in the homosexual lifestyle and who God saved and transformed. If you would ever like to dialogue about anything or need anything at all, please know that I would be honored to speak with you or serve you in any way I can. And if, you ever, if you're ever in the Los Angeles area, please come by Living Waters for a visit. I would love to give you a tour and treat you to lunch. Thank you so much for taking the time to correspond with me. I'm very grateful for that, your friend, Easy. And so I waited, and I held my breath. I thought, Lord, this dude is going to blow me up right now. And then I got this response. Easy, thank you for showing love and compassion. It means a lot. I've been in a roaring storm that started the, my first year of college. I came to Christ before starting school. I came out to friends and family during my first year because of my rebellion, even after being saved. I love the Lord. I know I have done wrong, and in this, this place and time, I don't know what to do. God has been with me and my family. He has done miracles in our family, which is why I know he is with me. I feel my spirit and his voice calling me. My life is full of sin, and I don't know where to turn or what to do anymore. I feel like God has also been silent. 
I don't know what he wants me to do. I tried praying and asking for help, but due to my participation in sin, I don't think he's helping me. What can I do? I guess I know the answer to that. Thank you for caring. Sincerely, John. That was a change of tune, wouldn't you say? I was shocked. I was blown away. I'm like, Lord, what is this? I I was expecting this guy to to go off on me, and, and I couldn't believe it. So I said, John, I'm deeply touched by how open you've been with me. I realize that you didn't have to do that. I don't take that trust lightly. I've been praying for you since receiving your message, and I will continue to intercede for you. And then I asked for his email address and told him I would write to him with further thoughts uh, because it's difficult to talk through Facebook. And I was going to write him a letter and describe to him that if he really knew Christ, he wouldn't be living in a lifestyle of habitual homosexuality because if we're, we're born again, then we turn from sin. Not that we can't struggle or stumble, but if, if he's saying, I'm a Christian and homosexuality is great, there's a problem there and he might not be born again. Um, but he responded and said, thanks, Easy. My apologies for what I said. As I had mentioned, life has been difficult and sometimes my flesh gets the best of me. You don't talk too much. Yes! Vindication! You don't talk too much. I was upset. You have a great ministry, and the way you talk is good. I've seen you and Ray speak many times. I've never felt that you said something offensive. You're always respectful and kind, and have, uh, and kind. have a great weekend, too. I said, thank you, John. No worries at all. I fully understand that things have been very difficult for you. I'm so glad that we got to connect, my friend. I'm really looking forward to writing to you. Have a great weekend. And I was about to write that letter, but before I had a chance to, I got this Final email from John. He said, thank you, Easy. Just wanted to let you know I've gotten right with God and I'm running for his heart and everything. I don't want to let go of him and fall into that lifestyle again. As much as my flesh would love it, I choose God. I've watched some of the videos you emailed me and they really ministered to me in a big way. So thank you and praise God for a new season in my life. Praise the Lord. Brothers, this is what compassion does. No glory to me. I'm a wicked, foolish sinner. I praise the Lord. But when we decide to yield and do what's right, we can touch people. This guy went from from lambasting me to opening up his life to me to getting right with God. You know what was amazing? He He ended up changing his Facebook profile picture to a picture of himself to a graphic of a movie called Audacity that we produced on the homosexual lifestyle. That's called transformation by the grace of God. And this is who we're called to be as ambassadors of Jesus. Colossians 4, 5 through 6, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your grace always be with, with uh, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to respond to each one. We need speech that is seasoned with grace and salt, knowing how to respond to, to people as ambassadors of Jesus in the midst of our busyness and craziness and insanity and exhaustion and in the midst of the Christian atmosphere that we exist in. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 25, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. This is what we should be marked by, brothers, by a Attitude that is not quarrelsome, but one of gentleness, one that has a a teaching spirit, one of patience, one of humility, correcting those who are in opposition. I want you to listen to this story. Shortly after coming to Christ, Sadhu Sundar, a Hindu convert to Christ, felt called to become a missionary to India. 
Late one afternoon, Sadhu was traveling on foot through the Himalayas with a Buddhist monk. It was bitterly cold, and the wind felt like sharp blades slicing into Sadhu's skin. Night was approaching fast when the monk warned Sadhu that they were in danger of freezing to death if they did not reach their destination before darkness fell. Just as they were traversing a narrow path above a steep cliff, they heard a cry for help. Down the cliff lay a man fallen and badly hurt. The monk looked at Sadhu and said, do not stop. God has brought this man to his fate. He must work it out for himself. Then he quickly added while walking on, let us hurry on before we too perish. But Sadhu replied, God has sent me here to help this man. I cannot abandon him. The monk continued trudging off through the whirling snow while the missionary clambered down the steep embankment. The man's leg was broken and he could not walk, so Sadhu took his blanket and made a sling of it and tied the man on his back. Then, bending under his burden, he began a body-torturing climb. By the time he reached the narrow path again, he was drenched in perspiration. Doggedly, he made his way through the deepening snow and darkness. It was all that he could do to follow the path. But he persevered, though faint and fatigued and overheated from exertion. Finally, he saw ahead the lights from the shelter. Then, for the first time, Sadhu stumbled and nearly fell, but not from weakness. He had stumbled over an object lying in the snow-covered road. Slowly, he bent down on one knee and brushed the snow off the object. It was the body of the monk, frozen to death. Years later, a disciple of Sadhu asked him, what is life's most difficult task? Without hesitation, Sadhu replied, life's most difficult task is to have no burden to carry. That burden that he carried, brothers, saved his life because it warmed him and filled him with what he needed to survive. Brothers, if we don't carry the burden of the world, we will grow cold and we will become ineffective for the Lord. Are we carrying the burden of the world? When we look out on people of different stripes, do we look at them and judge them and condemn them or do we look at them with compassion? And listen, compassion is not compromise at all. Compassion speaks the truth, but it speaks it in love and with care for the object of our compassion. And why can we be compassionate? Because we remember who we were and where we were. Remember Ephesians that tells us, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves. Remember Titus 3? right, that tells us that for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But then God saved us. We remember who we were. We remember where we were. So how can we look with condemnation and judgment toward the lost? May God change us. And let me close with this final story. It was a bitterly cold evening in northern Virginia many years ago. The old man's beard was glazed by winter's frost as he waited for a ride across the river. He heard a brigade of men on horses coming around the bend he let the first one pass him without any effort to get his attention. Then another passed by and another. Finally, the last rider neared the old man, near, caught the rider's eye and said, Sir, would you mind giving an old man a ride to the other side? The rider said, Sure thing, hop aboard. Seeing the old man unable to lift his half-frozen body under the horse, the horseman dismounted and helped the old man under the horse. The horseman not only took the old man across the river, but to his destination, which was a few miles away. As they neared the man's home, the horseman was curious, and he said, Sir, I noticed that you let several other riders pass by without making any effort to get a ride. Then I came up, and you immediately asked me for a ride. I'm curious why in such a bitterly cold night that you would wait and ask the last rider. What if I had refused and left you there? The old man replied, I've been around these parts for some time. I reckon I know people pretty good. I looked into your eyes 
into the eyes of the other riders and immediately saw there was no concern for my situation. It would have been useless even to ask them for a ride. But when I looked into your eyes, kindness and compassion were there. I knew that your gentle spirit would welcome the opportunity to help me in my time of need. Those heartwarming comments touched the horseman. I'm most grateful for what you have said, he told the old man. May I never be too busy in my own affairs that I fail to respond to the needs of others with kindness and compassion. With that, Thomas Jefferson turned his horse around and made his way back to the White House. You think the President of the United States has some pressure, some busyness, some trials, some difficult circumstances and unfavorable people? And yet he paused to have compassion. May we brothers do the same. And my time is up. Father, thank you so much for your word. We ask, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you would help us as men to be men of compassion, that we would look out on the multitudes and see them as weary and as scattered and as sheep without a shepherd. Then, Lord, may we be moved to enter their world to, to understand that they're flayed and torn and mangled and cast down from exhaustion and shepherdless. And may we, Lord, be your hands and feet. May we be the answer to your prayer. May we go into the harvest fields. May you help us to, to show that care and that genuine love for people. And may you use us as instruments for your glory. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you, brother.